This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980-CFPL. Has anybody been offered a brownie yet today? Here, try this. I made it last night. But wait. Wait till you get home. Don't eat it here. (laughs) Has anybody gone through that today? Edibles are now legal. And as much as that sounds like a big headline, it really isn't. This is not about edibles being legal. This is about people being able to sell edibles. And in fact, as we've been hearing a lot, these are not even going to be available typically in the normal places to buy them. Not the guy you know down the street who makes the stuff. Not that guy, but in actual stores that have been providing marijuana and cannabis-related products that are not edibles, is that what they are, edibles, Uh, and oils and things like that. It's not going to happen until the middle of December. So this this is still a conversation we need to have because I really believe, just like I believed last year, that there will be some sort of change in the way that people act. But I think... As opposed to marijuana, which I thought would have more effects than it actually has, I think edibles will be one of those things that that kind of bridge the gap. It's kind of like when country music started to cross over, when Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton took Islands in the Stream, and instead of it being just a country hit, it crossed over to the pop chart. Taylor Swift just completely crossed over. It's that kind of thing where, yeah, I don't want to smoke anything. I don't want to bring it into my lungs, but eh, I'm out for a loopy time on the weekend. Here we go. It's that attitude. And I'm not speaking personally. I don't plan to eat edibles. And remember the rule that we were given not too long ago on London Live that we should all sit very tight to. If you are going to make use of edibles, try a little bit. And then don't try any more until tomorrow. I can tell the Sherbert story again. Woman gets Sherbert, has some cannabis content to it, is told, only eat a spoonful. That's it. Just a spoonful. Goes home, eats a spoonful, thinks that's pretty tasty. Decides to eat a second spoonful. Before she knows it, she's eaten the whole little cup. Orange sherbet all over the bathroom? Yeah, that happened. And re-wallpapering for the rest of the weekend? Yeah, that happened too. So you've got to be a little bit more cautious, perhaps. And the other thing is, what is this going to do to our food industry? That's a big question. We know that this is a very lucrative industry, which if we rewind time to October the 17th of 2018, which is why the government is allowing this in the first place. They were looking around saying, people are smoking pot. You want to try and make some tax dollars off this? Might as well. Country needs some money. We want to get away from oil. Let's do this. And that's kind of where it came from in a nutshell, right? Well, this next incarnation is bigger and is one of those things that aims to be the crossover hit where it's not just the people who are willing to smoke marijuana. It is the people who are saying, wow, look at that gummy worm. 
<laughs> that kind of stuff. So, in having this conversation, we need to find someone who is very well researched, very educated when it comes to maybe the potential effect on the food industry and things that we need to be aware of, ready for. That's what we're all about on talk radio. Hey, this might not affect you, but just in case, here's some information. Joining us on London Live is Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. He's a Canadian researcher in food distribution and policy at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia. Dr. Charlebois, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. You wrote something going back a little over a year now, kind of looking at the future, realizing what was happening, and wondering how prepared we were going to be legislatively. How prepared are we legislatively now that October 17th of 2019 has arrived? Uh, well, <laughs> we're, I think we're still an experiment. Uh, and we're an experiment uh, to the world, really. I mean, this is, is this new uh, to us. It's new to, to the rest of the world. It's been an interesting first year. Uh, so they call it Cannabis 1.0. Today is Cannabis 2.0 with with uh, with edibles. The first year I was expecting a year ago to perhaps hear uh, horror stories uh, of of people overdosing, ending uh, ending up in hospital here and there. There were little incidences here and there, of course, but not as much as I was expecting. Yeah. What I, what happened though are what the unexpected was really about Cantrust. Companies breaching policy and regulations uh, using uh, unregulated seeds and uh, and COs being fired and that is something that I was not expecting during the first year and that really has undermined uh, the industry the entire industry and 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 so investors are are a little bit more careful there's not as much enthusiasm. Uh, in investing in cannabis, and, and from a consumer perspective, it's the same thing. A lot of people were expecting a huge party with balloons and music, only to end up in some church basement with lousy music. <laughs> That's a perfect picture. And you would think <laughs> you would think that you know, with this industry having its its seedy underbelly being a kind of a an illegal industry up until now, a black market industry up until now, you would think that everybody would aim to be as squeaky clean as possible right off the get go. Exactly. It wasn't like that. Exactly. I mean, everyone was looking at them. Everyone was watching. And that's why I was a little bit shocked to see uh, some companies daring. And, and so Can Trust this week had to burn uh, $70 million worth of cannabis just to regain the trust of investors in the market. And their stock value is south of 2 bucks a pop, which means that the value of their stock is, or the company uh, company's capitalization is uh, is actually uh, worth half of the company's assets. <laughs> That's pretty rare. So you can see that really uh, market confidence is at an all-time low. We have seen cannabis companies that came online and began to trade publicly. We have seen those become major investments where people have made a lot of money. Have we seen kind of a, a correction in that because of the year that we've had business-wise? Uh, I think so. Uh, I believe so. So there's, I mean, 
we're we're maturing as a cannabis market. We're still trying to figure things out. Uh, I actually do think that we're coming out of the first year uh, okay. Uh, the second phase, though, with 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 edibles, has been somewhat disappointing because the 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 regulatory regime uh, it being implemented by Health Canada is so restrictive. Uh, our concern, and this is this is the report that we're coming out today with, is is that our concern is that the 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 strict regulatory regime led by Health Canada will only allow the black market to explode, and because uh, edibles won't be ready, uh, there won't be any uh, edibles on the market for at least a few months. But in the meantime, there is going to be demand for it. I mean, 73% of Canadians who are favorable to the legalization of cannabis want to try the stuff. And if there's no product, well, guess what's going to happen? They're going to go either online or they'll go to an illegal shop to buy and try edibles. Is this people making legislation who don't realize how this is going to work? You would think they would be ready for this because they weren't really completely ready for the legalization of marijuana when you look at the online shopping problems that existed and once they sorted all of that stuff out you would think all right well this time around we got to be ready we got to be really prepared when we hit october 17th and the green light goes on we're going to be there they're not there no no not at all i I, but i wouldn't i would say that the first year uh the first year's rollout was actually a disaster uh because when you actually compare what happened in Canada versus some states in the U.S., we're pretty much at par when you look at the the legal slash illicit ratio. We're right now we're at about twenty eighty, so twenty percent of 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 all can, recreational cannabis being sold in Canada is is legal. Eighty percent is illegal, and after one year, most of the states were there. Now it's. It's what comes after that I'm concerned about with, with edibles. Uh, in the U.S., rules are, were much looser. Here in Canada, they're so strict that, and typically what happens after a few years, people are, they convert. They actually leave the dry stuff and they start eating edibles instead because it's actually better for your body. But if the product is not there and people actually go to the black market, well, the black market is only going to explode the government doesn't get any revenues, and there is no oversight over these products. So who knows what's going to happen? Dr. Sylvain Charlebois joining us, Canadian researcher in food distribution and policy at Dalhousie University. As we talk about edibles, when we look at edibles from when they are available from a food distribution point of view, labeling comes up. How do you expect labeling to work in this case? Well, so labeling is uh, is pretty clear cut in the uh, in the amendment for for edibles. Uh, in fact, uh, the packaging itself is going to be quite restrictive. It has to be plain, no colors, no characters, uh, and uh, and of course, when it comes to uh, THC content, uh, you, there is a threshold of ten percent being implemented. So. People shouldn't be worried too much about that. Uh, in fact, there are so many, there are so many restrictions there that, uh, it's, it's basically going to be dull. And, and it's not necessarily a bad thing to start things off. The, the one concern that I have is price. Uh, and you're, you're starting to see the legal market adjusting to the black market. So the black market a year ago adjusted to the legal market. 
which is why we actually now have access to cheaper cannabis, and the quality has gone up. The illicit stuff, uh, the quality has gone up. And so now, a year in, what you're seeing are provinces starting to drop prices, like Quebec, last week and and this week it's new brunswick and i wouldn't be surprised to see ontario adjusting prices as well just because well there is a market and we want to supply products and but if we do want to make a dent in the black market we have to do we have to make some sacrifices around revenues i guess a, a final point would be once everything does become available in stores once everybody gets used to what the pricing will be what the distribution will be are there are there any kind of areas where you might have some some manufacturers or where you might have let's say the uh, the wine market would would they be concerned about what what legalized edibles could mean to their industry? Uh, absolutely, they've they've actually been playing defense since day one, and that's why we've seen so many investments and partnerships being announced say, between Molson Coors and Exo in Gatineau. You've seen uh, also Constellation Brands, uh, the owner of the Corona brand, investing in cannabis. You've seen uh, Anheuser-Busch also investing in, in cannabis. And, and of course, they're, they're, playing, they're playing defense. But, of course, you cannot mix cannabis with alcohol in law. It doesn't allow you to do that. And if you actually put cannabis into your beverage, you can't call it a beer, you can't call it wine. And so you can see that really uh, the amendment was designed in order to protect uh, those industries specifically. But we do expect um, cannabis to eat up some of the market share in, in beer and wine, absolutely. Interesting. And then is there anything else that you think we should be on the lookout for or ready for as all of this unfolds? Well, I think overall, I mean, you got to also think of, of the positives. Uh, there are 9,000 people working in cannabis now in Canada. 9,000. Hmm. That's, that's a lot of people. And it generates over $8 billion worth of, of business across the country. So, there, there is a le- there's a financial uh, economic legacy there that is interesting, and it's only going to grow. So I think overall it was a good idea to legislate or to legalize cannabis. All we need is Ottawa to to adopt a different attitude. Instead of decriminalizing cannabis, it should legalize it for real. Well, and and how would that look? It would, when you mean legalize it for real, how would that look? Well, give a chance to Canadian companies to develop their own products and commercializing them. Right now, if you give a chance to the black market, which I think this is what we're doing, you're going to be allowing companies outside our country to take advantage of our legal market here in Canada. Hmm. You're not going to be generating any economic growth in Canada as a result. So that's why the black market issue is a big one. If you actually start attacking the black market, you will generate jobs, and you'll foster more innovation in the food industry, as far as I'm concerned. And that's a good thing for our economy. But at the moment, we're allowing the two to kind of coexist? <laughs> if, if any policy actually allows the black market to expand, it's bad news for taxpayers, it's bad news for our economy. And do we have that, in your opinion, right now? We have the potential for that? I think we do have the potential. We just don't have the legislation to do that. Hmm. Interesting. Dr. Charlebois, it's always fascinating talking with you. Thanks so much for your time. 
All right. Take care. Bye-bye. That is Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. He's a researcher in food distribution and policy at Dalhousie University. And one of the, if, if we think back to last year at this time, what was one of the things that we kept hearing? Well, legalizing this will put a real dent in the black market. I'm not sure how much of a dent there has been and what Dr. Charlebois has said. And it's not tangible because we don't know how big the black market is. It's like saying, how much of the Internet is porn? I don't know. A lot? You have no idea. You talk to people who deal with that in the police force, they'll tell you 75% of the Internet is porn-related. And you think, that's, that's a joke. There's no way. We have no idea. We have no idea because you're not getting reports from the black market. You're not getting reports from people who are still selling this, quote-unquote, illegally. So there is no way for you to say, okay, well, this percentage is now uh, of legal sales and this percentage is black market. You have no idea. It's like trying to collect guns from people who shouldn't have guns. They're not going to tell you, hey, we should have a gun registry. Well, in theory, that's a great idea. And then you have to count on people being honest. Yeah, that's not going to happen. You know, if you said, okay, everybody in London, Ontario, who is selling marijuana like you used to before October 17th, 2018, uh, can you put up your hand or can you show up this Saturday and we'll write down your name and your address? We're just, we're doing a survey. No one's going to come. So that becomes a real issue. And as Dr. Charlebois points out, we're opening our doors to people from other countries who are able to say, yeah, you know, Canada, Canada's not ready for this, but uh, we can get our stuff into their market because everybody's getting the headlines. They're talking about it on talk radio. So people are just, they're discussing it. They, they, they want this. They want to give it a try, but they can't get it at their stores. That was the sound of my hand hitting my forehead. How much of Canada's population is impacted by dyslexia from a percentage point of view? What, like 8, 5%? That would still be a pretty big number. 5% of 36 million? Try 20. Try 20% of the population. We're going to talk about how London is going red for dyslexia awareness There are certain things that you hear about all the time. And again, it's good because it keeps things like that top of mind. There are things that you don't hear about enough. And dyslexia is probably one of those things because they have crunched some numbers on what we know about it, what we think we know about it, what's being done about it, what's being done in terms of testing children for it. The numbers will probably surprise you. Seriously surprise you try and come up with a percentage of the population in canada that is impacted by dyslexia and you would think i don't know it's got to be a single digit come on try 20 percent 20 percent and what you're going to see is the Taylor Building and the fountain at the Forks of the Thames going red for dyslexia awareness. And that is happening today. Joining us right now is the Executive Director of Dyslexia Canada, Christine Staley. Christine, thanks for taking some time out for us. Thank you for having us. 
Can we start at that number? 20% of the population is impacted by dyslexia. Do I have that right? I keep thinking I must be reading that wrong. No, you have that right. And most people have the same reaction that you do. They they really can't believe that it's that high. And when we talk about 15 to 20% of the population being impacted, remember that that can be at varying degrees. So we talk about dyslexia being mild, moderate to severe. So that includes everyone, but it does impact a significant portion of our population. One of the other things that people would find really interesting is the idea that as kids go through school, there is not dyslexia testing. There isn't mandatory testing. Is this something that gets discussed? That's correct. So Unlike other um, jurisdictions, so in the U.S. and the U.K. that have some sort of mandatory early screening, Canada does not have anything like that. And we know that you can screen for dyslexia as early as kindergarten. And it's a very, you know, there are very simple screens and tests out there. They are not formal diagnoses, but they are at least something that can give teachers and parents some guidance or at least, you know, some indication of whether their child is at risk of, of having dyslexia. And the other thing we know about from the research is that the earlier you can identify dyslexia and put in the proper supports and remediation, the greater the chance that that child will, in fact, learn how to read and read at grade level. There is absolutely no reason a child who's identified early um, will not learn how to read. And so that's why for, at Dyslexia Canada, we believe very strongly that early identification and early remediation is so important. That's fantastic news right there. But the flip side of that coin is the fact that if we don't have mandatory testing, man, how frustrating must it be for parents? You think about falling behind in school. Once you fall behind, it is so hard to catch up. If you're not reading at grade level, it is so hard. The curriculum is not an easy one anymore. That's got to be frustrating for families. It is. And on top of that, we know that you must catch it by grade three. And so you have a very small window to catch it. And the reason why grade three is such an important time is that after the, after the grade three period, kids are no longer learning to read. They're reading to learn. And so everything just starts to pile up. And so if they don't have those basic fundamental skills of reading and literacy by grade three, they just get further and further behind And as a parent watching this, I can tell you it is absolutely heartbreaking to just see your child coming home, you know, every day struggling, thinking that they're stupid, thinking that they don't belong, when really there is something else going on and something that we could help with. Christine Staley joining us, Executive Director of Dyslexia Canada. Christine, because you have been in that situation, can you tell us how you finally do come to uh, to testing a child or, or thinking, hey, maybe this is what's happening? Yeah, so there are some, some signs that parents can watch out for, um, again, as early as kindergarten. But if your child, you know, is is struggling to read, struggling to spell, because dyslexia also impacts the ability to, to spell, um, if you're finding that that is a real challenge, if there are difficulties in rhyming, um, actually printing letters out, or if they start acting up in school, but you know really, you know, they're quite a bright child, but there's something else going on, 
Make sure you have those discussions with your classroom teachers. Have the discussions with your family doctor and do your research. Don't let anyone tell you that, oh, they'll just catch up or, oh, you know, boys are, are take a bit longer to learn to read. Follow your gut. If you think there is something wrong, advocate for your child. Figure out what really is happening. Christine, how much jumping up and down does the typical parent have to do in order to make something happen? Unfortunately, quite a bit. Um, And a lot of that has to do with awareness and exactly why we're having this campaign. Even though it impacts such a huge proportion of our population, there's not a lot of awareness in Canada. So right now, most teachers in Ontario and, in fact, in Canada know very little. They are not trained or taught about dyslexia in school. They're provided very little resources and tools. So not only can they not identify it, but even if they do know that it could be a problem, they don't have the supports and the, the skills to help that child. And in the same vein, we don't talk about it a lot. So a lot of adults who have dyslexia are embarrassed. There is a stigma around not being able to read. Um, and so it doesn't get spoken about. It doesn't get talked about. And so as a parent trying to have those conversations at the school level or with your doctors, can be extremely frustrating, and you end up having to be an advocate. Christine Staley with us, Executive Director of Dyslexia Canada. Christine, you're saying a lot of things that I think a lot of people are saying, how? Like, dyslexia was not first diagnosed last year. This has been around for a very long time. How is how is this, the landscape not better? Yeah, and, and for us, again, at, at Dyslexia Canada, is very frustrating. We're seeing in the United States, Almost every state now has legislation specifically focused on dyslexia, on, you know, calling it dyslexia and providing a concrete diagnosis for it, having mandatory early identification, mandatory training for teachers and supports for kids. The UK also has the same thing. But in Canada, we just seem to be behind the times. Um, We're quite a bit uh, slower at, at acknowledging dyslexia and what it is. And what we are finding is that instead of just calling it out for what it is, there are terms being used like a learning disability, which dyslexia is. It is the the, the largest uh, learning disability. But so when parents go to the schools or they get a diagnosis, they'll just say learning disability, specific learning disability. Maybe they might get lucky and it'll be called a reading learning disability. Um, but it's it's hidden in those terms. And so it's up to parents to try to Google the best they can to figure out what really is that? What does it mean? And we'll finally get to the point of saying, oh, I think this is dyslexia. I think that's what this means. Okay. In closing then, how do we change this, Christine? If, if we could grab the magic wand, because on the radio we can, what could we do? So the most important thing for us right now is to talk about it, bring the awareness out. So we are launching our second annual campaign called Market Red for Dyslexia, where we are asking buildings to light up red for one day uh, throughout the month of October. And we are very honored to have the support of the City of London. There are four buildings, as you said, lighting up. There's City Hall, the Fountain at the Forks, J.A. Taylor Building, and Canada Life Building. And so we're just asking people, go out take pictures, post it on social media, and use the hashtag MarketRed. The more we talk about it, the more we shout out about it, 
the more we're hoping teachers, legislators, and stakeholders will take an interest and really make the the right changes happen. Christine, your passion is infectious. Uh, Never lose that. And thanks so much for what you're doing in this. Thank you. Take care. Take care. That is Christine Staley, Executive Director of Dyslexia Canada. So four buildings, City Hall, Taylor Building... The Fountain of the Forks, which isn't necessarily a building, but oh, it glows red. You'll see buildings glowing red. And as Christine says, take a picture, post it, because, yeah, how did this happen? How did we fall into, well, it's a learning disability? Give me a break. If you are a parent and you need something done for your child and you have very limited time to do it, give me a break. Well, it's a learning disability. We're just doing No. I want this spelled out. I want this helped. This, I still can't believe this. This this is incredibly frustrating. It really is to think dyslexia has been around that long. When you compare what's happening in other countries to what's happening here, and we're blending it together, it's going to be a reason for that. There are issues that have not been front and center. Always you'll have issues that, that will will become easy targets and the environment has been an easy target this time around and of course economics and what the liberals may have or have not done that becomes an easy issue but there are issues that are ignored and ignited and we had an opportunity to talk with global news reporter mike armstrong yesterday about this and we enjoyed it so much we wanted him back today simply because he's got another issue that has popped up that again, deals with London, Ontario, as much as it does with a whole lot of other areas across this country. And that is a drug problem, a drug epidemic. And yet, it isn't something that the leaders tend to talk a lot about. But when you ask somebody, what is it that you're concerned about in your city? How many times do we talk about the downtown in London and we hear the answer, you know what, it's It's the people that are down there. It's the people that really don't have anywhere to go. It is people that make me afraid to go downtown because I'm watching them use drugs very openly. That's not something I'm going to take my kids near. So this is this is an issue, not just here. This is an issue in just about any major city across this country. And yet it hasn't come up on the campaign trail. Global News reporter Mike Armstrong joins us right now. Mike, again, thanks for doing this series. It's been a fascinating series. When we're talking about the drug epidemic, what do you feel that we need to focus on to talk about this properly? Well, it's interesting. That's that's a tough question. Um, Basically, you know, we put this call out and people, as you said, started uh, sending us emails from all different parts of the country. And, And it doesn't affect only one place. That's for darn sure. I mean, we see it in Montreal uh, where I am, uh, we had emails from uh, Calgary. My family lives in Ottawa. We we hear about it there as well. And then, basically, people who are advocating for safe or supervised injection sites, you hear it from them. They say that the federal government should be doing more. That uh, I spoke to one gentleman, and he said, you know, if this was tainted lettuce and people were dying all the time, this would be the number one issue in this election, and we'd take care of the problem. Um, and he complains that it's a, a stigma issue. Um, but then you hear people who are perhaps not in favor of safe injection sites uh, who say this is a crime issue and the government should get involved. 
So there's there's no shortage of people saying that they should get involved. And as you said, it really is interesting that it, it is something that affects communities right across the country, um, and which is the same for the issue we're actually going to be talking about today on Global National. We sort of shifted them up. Um, so the opioid epidemics tomorrow, today we're talking about another very much a national issue, uh, housing and the, the lack of affordable housing right across this country. You know, we're, we're a darn big uh, nation, but a lot of these problems are problems from coast to coast and uh, right across the country. And sometimes the two can go hand in hand for a lot of people in the population. And we're seeing such a rise in housing prices, and we've experienced this in southwestern Ontario. It was a big part of the debate that actually was held earlier today, that if you go down to Port Stanley, which years ago you could have picked up a property that was a whole lot less than $800,000, now you're looking at properties that are hitting that kind of number. And you have young people coming out of school saying, I'm never going to own a home. There is no way. What exactly are the, the key concerns outside of maybe young people and trying to get into the market in terms of, of the cost of housing? Yeah, you know what it is? It's supply. Supply really is the big problem. Uh, back in the 90s, uh, the experts say that developers started looking at condos and sort of luxury apartments, things like that, and turned away from building uh, just rental apartments. That just hasn't been done for, for literally for decades. So we've had this population increase. We've had uh, a lack of people of building. Uh, we've had a lot of properties, rental properties that are taken off the market for companies like things like Airbnb and stuff like that. Um, you know, there's, I saw a stat that the University of Charlottetown has grown by about a third in the last 14 years. They've added zero residences. They haven't built any new residences. So what does that do to Charlottetown? And I was in uh, Kingston, Ontario just last week, heard the exact same thing from people saying uh, Queens keeps expanding and they're not building new, new places. And then it used to be this big city problem, you know, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver. And now it's not just the suburbs or mid-sized uh, cities as well, but it's smaller cities. Uh, it really has spread out. That's what all of the experts say. And the people in Kingston kept telling me, look, you know, you see these uh, homeowners in Toronto that want to retire, they sell their nice, expensive house, great, and they move to Kingston, fantastic. Except they're taking the housing here, uh, and that's driving up uh, the prices, and, there, and it may, means that there's less supply here. So it's causing problems everywhere. And is there a way to deal with this? Because a lot of it, you know, th- this isn't really a thing that the government can weigh itself into very easily. This is private sales stuff where people are saying, yeah, okay, I'll pay $1.2 million for that three-bedroom condo in Vancouver. No problem. Here you go. The government's not going to have a choice. Um, basically, all the parties are saying they're going to incentivize developers to build uh, new rental accommodations. And, and basically, we've seen the population grow so much that they really aren't going to have a choice. The problem is, um, you know, you can approve a building, but that takes two, three, four, five, seven years to get that building sort of uh, through all the different phases of approval, and then and then built finally. So this is a problem. It's it's literally a crisis. That's what all the experts we spoke to tell us. Um, basically, eight hundred thousand people in Canada are spending more than half of their income just paying to keep a roof over their head. Just rent half of their income. Imagine that. Um, so fixing this problem is going to take years. Hmm. So that's just it. If we want to water it down, which eventually can happen, yeah, this is not an overnight fix, is it? Not at all. It's uh, it, it really is a problem. And when you speak to people, we went. We had an email from a gentleman in Pemberton, British Columbia, 
who sent me a note saying like, I'm stuck. Like I, I can't afford to, to, to rent an apartment here. It's too much. I've got a little trailer, 540 square feet. And we're a family of five, a blended family of five. And he's like, my kids, he's, he's a poor guy. He says, my kids are in uh, early elementary school. He said, I'm, I work full time as a truck driver and an equipment operator in the local quarry. I make good coin. I mean, I, I, you know, I have a decent salary, this is all I can afford, and I'm stuck in this trailer probably until my kids move out. Wow. That paints the picture of it right there, doesn't it? It really does, yeah. Well, again, Mike, thanks so much for doing the series. And tonight on Global National, we will hear more about housing. And then tomorrow, drug epidemic? Yeah, exactly. We've got uh, boy, a whole bunch of people lined up already that we're speaking to, and it is just a fascinating, fascinating issue. And as you pointed out earlier, It's affecting communities right across the country. Look forward to it. Mike, thanks so much. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye-bye. That is Mike Armstrong from Global News. So they made a little switch. The drug epidemic story will go tomorrow on Global National, but tonight they will look at the housing crisis. And doesn't that spell it out, that you've got a blended family, everybody's working, full-time jobs, but you've got five kids And in Pemberton, British Columbia, which most of us couldn't find on a map, you can't afford anything that is more than a 540-square-foot trailer. That's tough. But that's one of many, many stories. And then you've got people who are trying to get into places, can't afford it, people who are not making enough. The rule of thumb is always do not spend more than a third of your income on housing. And now we're pushing past half. That's an issue. But to water down the system is going to take years. And what happens in terms of a rise in the market? Where's the tipping point here? Where does it hit a breaking point even where it says, no, 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 this this is as high as people are willing to go? Can you imagine? Like people in Vancouver and Toronto probably looked and said, there is no way that houses can be worth $1.2, $1.5 million for three bedrooms and a bathroom and a half. But you can find them for that price. And the people are, are only happy to sell them if those that are willing to buy them are standing at the door saying, here you go. Here's the money. Crazy stuff. I don't know. I don't, I don't know where that came from. I don't know how we get out of it. And I'm sure that a lot of government officials are dreading the day that they have to sit down and figure out what to do to try and help those who are in certain situations. And we've talked with people on London Live before, and we've heard some heartbreaking stories. They're not the only ones out there. There's a lot of people living like this. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.